Let's take a moment and go to the Lord in prayer this morning and ask Him to bless the rest of our service this morning. It's wonderful to be together to worship our Heavenly Father. Father, we thank You for this day. What a privilege it is to come together into Your house this morning and to worship You in song, to be able to speak to You in prayer, to be able to hear from Your Word this morning. Lord, we thank You for the Holy Spirit that will work in our hearts today. Lord, we thank You for Your love for us and sending Jesus, our Redeemer, to save us from our sins. Lord, we just sang all those things that we can thank You for. Lord, that You've given us so many blessings. Help us now as we continue on with this service to keep our hearts and minds focused on you today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Good to have you here this morning. We're going to go ahead and dismiss our boys and girls out to their junior church time. And let's take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 10 this morning. Nehemiah chapter 10. And I am thankful for how God continues to do a work in our hearts through His Word. God's Word is powerful, isn't it? The Bible says it is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In other words, God's Word with the Holy Spirit of God behind it has the ability to cut sharply and to cut deeply and to challenge us with truth about who God is. Sometimes we can look at the Word of God as just an academic book, something that's hard for us to understand and to try to read and study and those things. And while we should read it and we should study it, the Bible commands us to do that, it is the way that we can have a relationship with God and know who God is, is through His Word, because God reveals Himself to us on the pages of Scripture. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, the Bible says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Last Sunday, as we looked at Nehemiah chapter 9, we read of the confession of the people of Israel. As they got right with God because of their sin, they admitted that they had done wickedly. They admitted that they had not followed God. And they acknowledged that God had punished them for this and that they deserved this because God was faithful and God was just. And they turned back to God and that was a wonderful thing. But I don't know about you, have you ever seen somebody or had this experience in your own life where you had a time where God worked on your heart or you saw someone else and they made a great confession. You said, wow, they got their life turned around. Things seemed to be going well, but then they didn't continue in it. You know what I'm talking about? People that seem like they start off well, but don't finish well or don't continue on. Unfortunately, that's not just something that happens to other people. That's stuff that happens to me. That's something that happens to you. I think one of the biggest challenges in the Christian life, it begins by coming to God and getting right with God and having a personal relationship with God, but then to continue on in that relationship, to live as God wants us to live faithfully can be a great challenge. There's a story told of a man who would from time to time be asked to pray in his church, and he would often finish his prayer by saying, and God clean these cobwebs out of my life. And uh, people thought, well, that's kind of nice, you know, get the cobwebs out of my life. And a few weeks later, he was called on to pray again. And as he finished his prayer, he said, and God, please clean all the cobwebs out of my life. And after he'd done this three or four times, finally one day as he was praying and he was finishing up, and God, clean the cobwebs out of my life, someone shouted out from the back, and Lord, please kill the spider. Why do we get cobwebs because spiders build them? Why do we keep having the same problems? Well, maybe there's something that we need to deal with so that we don't keep having those same things happen over and over again. You understand? Well, here in Nehemiah chapter 10, we see the people as they've responded to God's word. They heard it read. They came back in, in obedience to the Lord. But in chapter 10, we see them making a covenant with God. If you read the first, oh, 26, 27 verses, 
you see a whole list of people. Verses 1 through 27 named people who signed on to this covenant that they made with God. This was what they were saying, God, here's how we're going to remain faithful to you. These are the things that we are going to do. And if you read through the list, which I won't take time to read all the names, but if you look at the list, you'll see, for example, in verse number 8, it says, these were the priests. So the first eight verses, we have a list of the priests. And oh, by the way, Nehemiah put his name at the top of this list. Nehemiah, as the leader of God's people, didn't say, well, I don't need to commit to follow God. I'm already uh, where I need to be. I've already arrived. No, Nehemiah is right along with them saying, I'm committing to this as well. But then we see a list of the priests. So we had the spiritual leaders of the land signing on to say, we are committing to follow God in this way. But then you see in the next few verses, the Levites mentioned. Not only were those who were responsible for making the sacrifices in the temple, also those Levites who were responsible for leading the people in worship, those who would sing praises to God, those who would play their instruments in worship to God, they also signed on and said, we're putting our names to this too, that we are going to follow God. You keep reading in the list, and then we read through a number of leaders of the people. As the people as number of leaders signed on and said, we're going to follow God. We're going to do what God wants us to do. You see that mentioned in verse 14, the chief of the people. So many people signed their names to this, but then if you go down to verse 28, it says, and the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nethanims, and all that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding. Our message this morning is very simple. Three ways that we can continue in living faithfully to what we've committed to God. Or I made a little catchy title, Mountaintop Sundays and Rock Bottom Mondays, right? We can be on a spiritual mountaintop on Sunday. Hey, it was great. I did what God wanted me to do. We worship God, but how do we continue on on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now? Because we've all probably seen and experienced times in our own lives where we've made some commitment to God, but the question is, did we keep what we've committed to do. In this passage of Scripture, in chapter 10, we're going to see three different ways that the people committed to stay faithful to God. And I believe if we would find these same three principles in our lives, we could continue to live a life faithful to the Lord. I want you to notice the first way. It's found in verse number 29. It says, They clave to their brethren their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath. So this was a strong commitment to God. What was the commitment? You see it right there. To walk in God's law. They submitted themselves to the word of God. It's one thing to have a moment when you sense God at work in your heart, or have some emotional experience when you're brought to tears, or a moment where you say, I've just got to make this right. But how do we continue in it? It's by submitting ourselves to the Word of God. This submission that they brought themselves into, the Word of God, was not a one-time thing. This was something that they were making a commitment that they would continue to do on a regular, daily Basis. Notice the rest of the verse. To walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God. Here it is. And to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his judgments and his statutes. Sounds a lot like Joshua 1 and verse 8, which says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. 
These people were coming to God and they were saying, God, we are going to submit ourselves to your word. And I would ask you this morning, how does it in your life today, when it comes to God's word, do you submit yourselves to the word of God? Well, first of all, to submit yourself to the word of God requires that you understand and know the word of God. Did you notice back in verse number 28? Who was it that did this? It says, All they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands under the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, notice the end of the verse, every one having knowledge and having understanding. You can't submit yourself to something that you don't have knowledge of or understanding of. It's impossible to submit yourself to the Word of God when you don't know what the Word of God is. That's why the Bible also says over in the New Testament, it says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. It requires that we know God's Word if we're going to be able to truly submit to it and obey in it and walk in the Word of God. That's why one of the big things we talk about a lot here at Arise Baptist Church is the importance of discipleship, of leading somebody else through the Word of God and studying God's Word together. Not just leading somebody through the Word of God, but also following someone else as they lead you through the Word of God. The Bible teaches us that in Matthew chapter 28, that we are to teach them to observe, to do according to all that is written therein. We're supposed to teach them to follow all of God's truth. So who were the people that submitted themselves to God's word? It was anybody in the land that had heard and understood and was willing to obey the word of God. That's a wonderful thing because it doesn't matter if you're 80 years old or if you're 8 years old. If you can understand God's word, you can obey God's word. You can submit yourself to God's Word. This is not just a message for children or teenagers or young adults or older adults. This is a message to anybody that can hear and understand, which is why even this morning as we're sitting in this room, there is the Word of God being taught just a few feet down the hall over there to a whole classroom full of boys and girls who, while yes, they may not think as quite as deeply as us on some things, although I would beg to differ sometimes. Children can have some very deep, wonderful thoughts about things. They're hearing and learning from God's Word. It's why moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas, you should be opening the Word of God at home with your children because they need to hear it from you. They need to learn it from you. They can understand. That's why even with ours, when they were even just newborns, we began to speak God's Word to them. We began to sing godly songs to them because we wanted that filling their minds because children begin to understand and you say, well, what point did they not? What point did they? It all kind of happens in a process, doesn't it? And we want their earliest thoughts to be thoughts about God so that they can learn to submit themselves to the Word of God. Because if you've raised children for any time, it's one thing to try to get them to submit to you as a parent. A very different thing to then take that and help them submit to God. And that's what we want for them, isn't it? But that's a choice that ultimately they're going to have to make for themselves. Just like these people made the choice for themselves to submit themselves to the Word of God. These people made a commitment. They made an oath to God. And yet, I would tell us today... As we read into the New Testament, our relationship to God is a little different. God doesn't command us to make oaths to Him like they were doing in the Old Testament. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shall perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool. Neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea 
yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. What's he saying here? Well, in this Old Testament time, they would make an oath to God. They would make a promise and they would make this covenant because it's how God related to them. And yet when we come to the New Testament, we're now living under grace. Jesus Christ has come and he's paid the penalty for our sin. And no longer am I having to, in a sense, make promises to God. Rather, I am to live based on the promises that God has made to me. I'm to live faithfully because of what God has done for me. So Jesus is saying, you don't need to continue to make more oaths and more promises and keep swearing by things to prove your allegiance to God. He's saying, just live faithfully to what God has already done for you. But God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We love him because he first loved us. We can serve God faithfully, not because we have to make an oath to God in this day and age, but rather because of the promises that God has already made to us. That being said, in the Old Testament where they were making an oath, in the New Testament where we are to live faithfully to God because of the promises He's made to us, either way, with both groups of people, we see a submissiveness to the Word of God. Are you submitting yourself to the promises that God has made to you? Why are you worried and afraid when God says that He'll never leave you nor forsake you? Why are you full of fear when the Bible says that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind? Why are you trying to fight and have a, a battle with somebody else and, and get revenge when the Bible says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. See, we can live a wonderful, healthy, holy Christian life if we'll live faithfully in the promises that God has already made to us. But that means submitting ourselves to the Word of God. Because the reality is this. First of all, people may not know the Word of God, so that's why we have to study. But secondly, once we know the Word of God, it requires humility on our part to submit to it. It's one thing to know it, it's another thing to do it. And we can sit in church on Sunday, as I believe we should, and hear the Word of God, but we have to be careful then to go out and obey it and do what it says. But sometimes we begin to think to ourselves, well, but if I obey God's word, then I'm not sure how this situation is going to work out. Be very thankful that you don't hold tomorrow, but God does. God's plans are the best plans. He wants what's best for you, and he's going to bring glory to himself, and you can trust him to take care of tomorrow. The Bible says, take no thought for tomorrow for sufficient is the, unto the day is the evil thereof. So we have enough to take care of in this day, in this moment. I have to be careful to obey God right now where I'm at. I don't have to be worried about what's going to take place tomorrow because God already knows. You don't have to worry about it. You can trust in the promises of God. You can submit yourself to the Word of God. I would say it this way, our obedience should be out of love for God more than just out of fear of breaking God's commands. It says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Where have you put your affection this morning. What do you love? What you love determines what you do, doesn't it? We love certain things, so that's why we spend money the way we do. That's why we spend time the way we do. That's why we hang out with the people that we do, because we love certain things. You can always tell what someone loves by what they do, by what they spend their time and their money and their efforts on. If you continued on in Colossians 3, verse 14, it says, And above all things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. So, 
These people were making a commitment to continue in their faithful walk with God. If you and I are going to continue to walk faithfully with God, to be right with God, to not fall back into the same problems that we just thought we got out of, we must continually submit ourselves to the Word of God. But that's not where it stops here. They submitted themselves to the Word of God, but then secondly, you'll notice in Nehemiah chapter 10 that they then separated themselves out as the people of God. We see a separation taking place as these people separated themselves from those that did not live godly lives. Now, separation is generally not a popular topic in the world that we live in today because the attitude is we should all just agree to disagree. And while I think we ought to, as much as live within us, live, with peace, live at peace with all men, yes, the Bible says that, it is very clear in God's Word what he means when he talks about separation. I'm going to try to explain that to you from this passage this morning. Notice back in verse 28 again of Nehemiah chapter 10. He says, And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nethanims, and all that had, here it is, separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God. So they submitted themselves to the law of God. They did that as they separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God. Sometimes people think of separation as a bad thing, but rather separation is a wonderful thing. This is a total commitment motivated by love. Think, for example, in a marriage. When I married my wife, I made some promises to her to separate myself from all others, forsaking all others, and giving myself to her as long as we both shall live. That's separation. And that's good. I think most people would agree, right? It is good if you're going to have a healthy marriage to separate yourself from everybody else and just be married to that one person. Biblically speaking, God wants us to love Him so much that we'd be willing to give up anything else so that we could completely and wholly give ourselves over to Him. That's an act of love. Notice as we look at this passage here, these people, they separated themselves from the people of the lands. Look down at verse number 30 and 31, Nehemiah chapter 10. It says, "...and that we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land." nor take their daughters for our sons. What was going on as they were trying to connect with the people in the land? They were saying, here, our children can get married to each other. That's okay. God says, no, that's not okay. Look at verse 31. And if the people of the land bring ware or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell. So the people are bringing items, maybe clothing, maybe tools, maybe food. And they were bringing it into the city to sell on the Sabbath day. Now, if you know your Bible, what does the Bible say? If you remember the fourth commandment the last Sunday, what's the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God had commanded them to set aside this special day. And instead of keeping it special, they were allowing the other people around to come in and to sell them items. And they were buying and selling. They hadn't set this day aside for the Lord they were keeping it for themselves. So he says in verse 31, if they bring anything in on the Sabbath day to sell, don't buy it from them. He said, we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Let me explain that. God had given the children of Israel some very specific laws. Go back to the book of Exodus and Leviticus and you can read about these things. Those might be books of the Bible that as you're reading through your Bible, you got bogged down in because you made a commitment. I'm going to read through my Bible this year. And then you got into Leviticus and you said, I, I don't think I can continue on. Why is Leviticus hard for some of us to read? Because it's full of laws. God explaining how they were to do the sacrifices, how they were to have order in the tabernacle, all these different things. But one of the commands that he had made for them, not only were they supposed to set aside the seventh day as a Sabbath day, they were also supposed to set aside the seventh year 
as a Sabbath year. You say, what, what's such a big deal about this? How did the, most of the Israelites at this point in history, how did most of them survive? How did most of them make their money? How did most of them live? They were shepherds and farmers. So how are you going to take a year and not go out and tend your fields and not go out and take care of your flocks? How are you going to survive? I guess you're going to have to trust God. And you know, not only that, every 50 years was the year of Jubilee. You say, man, God's asking for a lot. Can I tell you this morning, God can ask for whatever He wants because He's given us everything. And we struggle so much with giving back to God because we fail to recognize it is all God's in the first place. It's kind of like if you went to the grocery store and when you went through the checkout aisle, they had one of those bags of candy there and your four-year-old sitting there saying, Mommy, can I have some candy? And you say, yeah. And you buy the candy and you give it to them. And then you get to the car and you say, Hey, child, son, daughter, can I have a piece of that candy? My candy, right? <laughs> Wait a minute here. Where did that candy come from? came from mommy or daddy. They bought the candy. Now, here's the thing about God. God gives us everything we have. But God was letting them live how they chose to live based upon the laws of God, but God allowed them to do what they wanted to do with most of what He had given them. He just asked for some of it back. See, God asks for some of it back, not because God's mean, not because God's trying to punish you, but rather so that we remember where it came from in the first place. Because we tend to have that sort of, you know, what is the saying that possession is nine-tenths of, you know, it's like, if, I, if it's in my possession, it's mine. It's kind of like, you know, some people will borrow a tool from you. Some of you men have experienced this. Somebody will borrow your tool. <laughs> and... All of a sudden, you go to get that tool out of the garage, and you say, where is that tool? Oh, yeah, I lent it to so-and-so. Why did they never give me that tool back? And you call them, and they're like, I, I don't know. I don't remember what you're talking about. And then they invite you over to their house, and you go in their garage, and there's your tool. And you say, I know that's my tool. And you turn it over on the back, and it even has your initials on it. You know what I'm talking about? And they say, oh, I forgot it was there. Why? Because they possessed it. So they just, over time, assumed that they owned it. And yet they never owned it. You just lent it to them, and they kept it for longer than they should have, right? God gives us everything. Let's not be grouchy and stingy when he asks for some of it back. You see here as... This Sabbath, I'm going to go into this just a little bit more because it's fascinating. He calls for them to separate from living in a sinful way, to separate themselves from the people of the land, and to separate themselves to a loving and holy God. You see, it was the ministry of the priests to teach the people the difference between the holy and the common the Bible says in Ezekiel 44 and verse 23, And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. I would say I think I can make this application to myself then. I'm not your priest, don't get me wrong. But it's my job to proclaim God's word to you. And I think in so doing, I ought to help to teach you the difference between what is clean and what is unclean, between what is holy and what is profane. Not because this is my idea, but because this is what God's Word says. And we have to be careful about these things. I understand we can be accused of legalism. We can be accused of all kinds of things. And sometimes rightfully so, because we overstep what God has said. So I'm doing my best to be very careful this morning as I say these things, to only say what God has said, because 
This isn't about me. It's not about you. It's ultimately about God. He really focuses on two areas of separation here. First of all, separation in marriage. And then secondly, the separation over the issues regarding the Sabbath. I want you to notice, though, that another positive thing about separation we see here is that separation unites brothers and sisters in Christ. The people were coming together because they were stepping away from the things of the world. And there should be great uniting and unity in separation if we are separating ourselves unto God. The reason there's often great division, even among the body of Christ, when it comes to separation, is we're not really separating ourselves unto God sometimes. We're separating ourselves unto our church or separating ourselves unto our preacher or separating ourselves unto our own special preference. And we must be careful to separate ourselves unto God. Separation that ignores God and other believers is isolation and will eventually lead to sin. Because instead of me trying to please God, I'm now trying to please myself or please others. And it allows for pride and all kinds of other sin to work ourselves into our lives, which is not godly and not right. So we called for them to separate on the basis of marriage, that they ought to choose those to marry who were among those who were already part of God's people. Say, so why is this important? Well, living in a marriage with someone who is not devoted to serving God is very difficult. Don't purposefully put yourself in this situation. Now, some people have. If you find yourself in this situation... Don't seek to be rid of the marriage. Rather, pray for your mate and point them to God. That's what the Bible teaches. You will need great strength and grace to be faithful to God and your mate in this kind of marriage. But if you're not married, don't seek to put yourself in a marriage with somebody who is not also trying to follow God along with you. Someone would say, well, I just love them. Unfortunately, that's not a reason to get married to them. Control your affection. So I can't. It's the heart. What can I do? Colossians 3 says, set your affection on things above. It means I can choose where I put my affection. But you see, I would say in the case of the children of Israel, they were often marrying for status or personal advancement. That's why they chose to give uh, wives to the other wicked people in the land. You say, well, how do you know this? Well, if you go over a couple chapters to Nehemiah chapter 13, this is crazy, almost at the very end of the book, Nehemiah 13, verse 28, and one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, did you catch that? So the son of Jehoiada, who is the son of Eliashib, the high priest. So this is the high priest's grandson. He was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. Nehemiah says, therefore, I chased him from me. Why did he do this? If you've been here through this series on Nehemiah, you'll know who Sanballat the Horonite was. He was not a good man. He was an enemy of God and of the people of Israel. And he did everything he could to slander God's people, to attack God's people, to threaten God's people, to stop the work of God. And how was the high priest's grandson married to this guy? We don't know the whole story. But by studying out Nehemiah, it seems like Sanballat was a pretty influential fellow. We don't know why they got married, but I would say they probably shouldn't have because they were seeking after personal advancement, seeking after their own things, and not seeking after God. Say, this sounds very hard. Is it very hard that I stay married to Shandy and not go date a bunch of other women at the same time? We wouldn't call that hard, right? Because I'm, I'm married to her. I love her more than any other lady in the whole world. And that's the way it should be. Folks, if we love God, 
more than anything else in the whole world. We ought to be willing to commit our lives wholly to him. God's not trying to remove fun out of your life. He's not trying to take away things that are good to you. God says no good thing will he withhold from them who walk uprightly. This is God calling his people to himself, reminding his people that they are his people. And I think we need a reminder today in our day and age, don't we? Of whose children we are. Are you really part of God's family? If you are, live like one of his children, not like a child of the devil. So they were separating in, in marriage and then separating over the Sabbath. already talked about this a little bit. But this is a crazy thing. I was thinking about this. If you remember, and some of you will, some of you won't, it's okay, I'll explain it. But the children of Israel had gone into captivity in Babylon. They had sinned, and, and so God allowed this enemy to come in. And, and the children of Israel, I mean, they were way smaller than the Babylonians. So the fact that the Babylonians hadn't conquered them early was only because God was protecting them. And because of their sin, God removed his hand of protection, so the Babylonians had no problem coming in and taking the children of Israel captive and taking them to Babylon. Do you know how long they spent in Babylon? Seventy years. Now, if you remember what I said earlier about those Sabbaths, the Sabbath year, the year of Jubilee... If you do the math on that, one out of every seven years, and then every 50 years, you're going to have another a year of Jubilee. 70 of those, 70 years, 70 Sabbath years, is about what it would take to make up for 500 years of missed Sabbaths. Now, if you go back, and it's just interesting in the history, you do the math here, the children of Israel had been forsaking God's command that they observe the Sabbath for some 500 years. And because of that, God put them in captivity for 70 years to make up for all the Sabbaths that they had missed. You say, you're just making this up. No. Look at 2 Chronicles 36.21. I know, you know, sometimes preachers get away with saying all kinds of crazy things. No. This isn't just a math problem. This is actually what the Bible says. 2 Chronicles 36, 21. Here's another book of the Bible you thought, I don't think I could ever make reading through 2 Chronicles. No, there's great stuff in here. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years. Three score and ten, that's 70 years. God let the land lay desolate for 70 years, which was the amount of time that they were in captivity. Why? So that the land could enjoy her Sabbaths. Isn't that amazing? You think God doesn't have a plan for every single thing He does? God didn't just randomly pick 70 years out of His head just because... That seems like a sufficient amount of time. No, God did it. It was to make up for exactly what they had done in not observing his Sabbaths. Can I make a couple other points about this? This shows God's grace and his mercy to his people. Sometimes we look at God's judgment in the Old Testament and say, wow, God was really harsh. They sinned and he just took them all into captivity. No, he allowed it to go on for 500 years. That's like twice the length of time, more than twice the length of time that the United States has been in existence. That's a long-suffering God. That's a patient God. And then when he did punish them, he wasn't punitive in his punishment. He didn't take back more, even though he could have. Could have said, all right, it's been 500 years. I'm done with you. No, he gave exactly back the 70 years, which was what they had missed in the first place. I think that's very interesting because sometimes, even as parents, right, your child does something small and we give them a little punishment. You're, all right, you're in time out for a few minutes. You get this, this, that, whatever. They do something else. They get something little, but boy, 
They are on my last nerve. And finally they do it, and we just go crazy. Bah! You know, and they go, what did I do this time? That's not how God deals with us. God is long-suffering to usward. In fact, in the New Testament, he said, is he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And in the Old Testament, God was consistent even with his people then. He allowed it to go on because he's merciful. He allowed it to go on. Remember chapter 9, he's merciful, he's gracious. He let it go, he let it go, he let it go. But there came a point where God said, okay, enough is enough. But he didn't go back and take 100 years. No, he just took the 70, which was the 70 that they had not given back to him in the first place. I just find that very interesting. And it teaches us a lot about the character of the God that we serve. He's faithful to keep his promises. He's gracious and he is merciful. So God tells them, you need to set this Sabbath aside. And so the people are putting down here, we are going to keep the Sabbath. I would tell you, if we're going to continue faithfully to the Lord, we must first submit ourselves to the word of God. And secondly, we must separate ourselves out as the people of God. As we say, God, I'm yours. I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. But then finally, we see in verses 32 through 39 of Nehemiah chapter 10, the support for the house of God. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. He says, put me first, and I'll take care of all of these things. In Nehemiah chapter 10 and verse 32, he says, Also we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves yearly with the third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. So he says, every year we're going to each pay a third of a shekel. So this was, if you think of a shekel as being a dollar, this would be 33 cents. A shekel is not a dollar, but you get the idea. A third of a shekel is going to be what we pay each year. Why? He says, for the service of the house of God. We're going to give this so that God's house can be cared for. You'll notice as I read this passage of Scripture, the phrase, house of our God, is used nine times. These people said, we are going to take care of and support the house of our God. He says, we're going to do this for the showbread, verse 33, for the continual meat offering, for the continual burnt offering of the Sabbath, the new moons, the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make an atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. So they planned how we're going to take care of all these offerings. That's a lot of animals. That's a lot of items for the sacrifices. There's bread to be brought. So there's a lot of grain it has to be ground and bread that's made. There's a lot of things that go into this. He says, verse 34, And we cast the lots among the priests, the Levites, the people, for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God. After the houses of our fathers at times appointed year by year to burn upon the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. So all the people said, we're going to give. There was a kind of a temple tax, if you will. We're going to give a certain amount. This was a flat amount. This wasn't whether you were rich or poor. It was just everybody can give a third of a shekel. Everybody gave something. Then there were others. They cast lots. They came up with a plan of how to bring the wood to God. I think it's a wonderful thing that God can take something as simple as wood, firewood, right? And use it for the glory of God. Can you believe that? Yeah. Brother Joe's excited about that because he's got firewood. I would tell you this, there is no gift too small to give to God. You say, well, I don't have much to bring. At this day, everybody could go find a stick. Everybody could go find something and they could bring it to the house of God. They were just bringing it to the Lord. They even brought the wood for the sacrifices. That's encouraging, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, sometimes I feel like, well, what can I do? I don't have a lot extra. I don't have a lot to give. I don't even have a lot of time. Maybe you've thought those things. It may be small, but be faithful to give to the Lord. 
God's not so concerned with the amount. God's concerned that we're faithful. Because we can only give based on how God has blessed us. Don't be a stingy giver. Be a gracious giver. Give out of what God has blessed you with. Don't look at somebody else and say, well, I don't even think it's worth it for me to give because I could never give as much as them. That's not why you're here, to give as much as somebody else. You're here to give to God because you love Him. The people said, we'll even bring the wood. Notice then in, in verse 35, and, and to bring the first fruits of our ground. So we had like this temple tax, we had the wood, and now there's the first fruits. So God, when you bless me, I'm going to give to you before I do anything else. First fruits of our ground, the first fruits of the fruit of all of our trees, year by year, under the house of the Lord. Also, the firstborn of our sons, God will even give you our children to serve you. Our cattle, as is written in the law, the firstlings of our herds and of our flocks to bring to the house of our God, unto the priests that minister in the house of our God, and that we should bring even the first fruits of our dough. They gave food, offerings, the fruit of all manner of trees, of wine, oil, unto the priest, to the chambers of the house of our Lord, and all the cities of our tillage. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites take tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes unto the house of our God, to the chambers, unto the treasure house. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the corn, of the new wine, and the oil unto the chambers, which are the vessels of the sanctuary. And the priests that minister and the porters and the singers. I love how he finishes this. And we will not forsake the house of our God. They've committed to submit themselves to the word of God. They've committed to separate themselves out as the people of God. And now they're committing themselves to not forsake the house of God. This idea of the temple tax, this was something they were coming back to. This wasn't something new that they dreamed up. God had commanded the children of Israel to do this way back in the, ver in the, in the first five books of the Bible. Originally, it was a half a shekel. Now it was down to a third. These were poor people. By the time of Christ, it was back up to a half shekel. It's interesting. There wasn't much inflation, I guess, over all those thousands of years. They gave a half shekel. I don't know. But the people were careful to give to, give to care for the work of the ministry. What was the work? It was the work that would go on in worship to God. It was for the glory of God. Into verse 33, for all the work of the house of our God. Today, we don't have to provide grain and sacrificial animals and all those things that they were doing here, but we do provide salaries. We take care of those who labor. The laborer is worthy of his hire. Luke 10, verse 7 says, we also care for the needy. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 3, talks about how we are to care for those who have physical needs. And we do that. We did some of that this week, and we do that pretty much every week because that's what we're supposed to be doing. As God blesses us, it's, it's not so that we can enrich ourselves. It's not so we can have the nicest property in the world. It's so that we can take care of the people God's given us. Now, I'm thankful we can take care of some property things at the same time. Thankful for some men that came and built the stage I'm standing on today. Lord willing, we'll have some men coming tomorrow to put some carpet on it. But the men who built it wanted to show off how good the carpentry... No, I'm kidding. That's not what they... <laughs> the carpet guy just couldn't get here yesterday. That's okay. Thankful for people that give. Why to take care of it? You know why we built an expanded stage? It's because we felt like it would help us to worship God better. We'd have room for more choir members and more instrumentalists. And then next month when we have our children tell us about... Jesus Christ coming as our Savior. We're going to have room. Last year we had 32 kids up here. I think this year we're going to have even more. We've got to have space for all of that. That's a, that's a good problem. But it's not so it can be the nicest thing in the world, but so that it can help us as we worship God. I'm thankful for some men this week that were coming and walking around on the roof and working on trying to seal up things and holes. We've got a man coming tomorrow to look at some heaters and AC units that aren't working right and some heaters that didn't come on last night and we're okay today but you know give it another month or two we may need something 
that all costs money. It all takes time. It all takes effort. And God's given us people in our church that can help with so many of those areas. That's such a blessing. But that's part of what the gifts go for, right? And it's so exciting. I'm looking forward to it. We've been working on some things for our budget for next year, putting some plans together. I'll tell you what's exciting, to see that God takes care of all of our needs. Because it all comes from Him anyway, and it's all His. God takes care of us so well. He's blessed us so much. God had blessed His people, the nation of Israel. And now as they were recognizing that, they said, we want to give back faithfully to you. So they gave of the temple tax. They gave of the wood offering. You go back to Leviticus chapter 6. You don't need to turn there now, but you could write it in your notes. Leviticus 6, 12 to 13. We learn that this fire in the temple, this was to be, or in the tabernacle, was to be kept burning and never allowed to go out. Take a lot of wood to do that. But isn't it interesting when everybody came together and brought a little bit, did their part to bring the wood, the fire never went out? I don't want to make too big a point on this, but it just makes me think, as every person in the church does their best to serve God and give back to God, maybe the fire here won't go out. Maybe God's work will continue to go forward. Maybe we'll be able to continue to praise God and continue to reach the lost for Christ. Folks, we live in a world that needs Jesus. And we all have a lot going on, I know. Probably nobody in this room can say, well, I, I can give 40 hours, I can give 50 hours. No. Maybe you can't bring the whole truckload of wood, but maybe you could bring one piece, say, I could give an hour, I could give 30 minutes, I could give two hours. I can't give the biggest check in the world, but I could give a little bit. But it's not for my glory, it's for God's glory. I just want to be faithful to Him. The priests made sacrifices, the Levites led in worship, but everyone could bring in the wood. Every person is important to the work of God's church. Every person's important in keeping the ministry going forward here. People will sometimes say, well, I can't sing. That's okay. Not everybody needs to be up singing to everybody else, but everybody can make a joyful noise to the Lord. The Bible does say, sing unto the Lord a new song. I know, but he also says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all you lay. So if you're the singer or you're the joyful noisemaker, we're happy to have you. You come sing, you come make your joyful noise. Because you're not singing ultimately for me, you're singing for God. And someone that has the most beautiful voice in the world, if they're just singing to bless themselves, I don't really want to hear them singing in our church. But if they're singing to bless the Lord and to lift hearts and minds towards Him, I'm not so concerned about the perfect vocal clarity in your voice. Just make a joyful noise yeah. to the Lord. You get enough voices making a joyful noise together, it's a beautiful sound. You say, well, I haven't had training. You don't need it to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Now, is training bad? No, training's a wonderful thing, and you can learn, and you can do things better. Sure, we want to continue to strive to do things better, but we can praise the Lord Everybody can be involved in discipleship. So well, I'm not ready to disciple somebody. Well, great. You can be discipled by somebody else. I was so encouraged this week. I got a call from somebody and he said, would you be willing to disciple me? Do you think you could do that? I said, yeah, I think I could. I think I can make time for that. Because that's what it's all about. Seeing people grow to be more like Jesus so that then they can take other people and show them how to be like Jesus. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever we've commanded them so that then they can go teach somebody else to do the same thing. That's a blessing. And to see people grow in that way. 
Notice they were to give their first fruits. I think it's interesting. God doesn't say how much of the first fruits were to be given, but rather it was just supposed to be the first and the best. This would be a good example for us to follow today. The offering, no doubt, should be in measure to the way that God had blessed the people. God gave them a lot. They wanted to give a lot back. The more He had blessed, the more they would give to Him. And then we see them giving the tithes. It was 10%. That's what a tithe was. God was very specific in the Old Testament with the children of Israel about giving the tithes. You can read about that in Leviticus 27, verses 30 to 34. 10% of what they earned was to be given to the Levites to be taken for the work in the house of the Lord. And then the Levites would give a tithe of the tithes to the priests. Numbers chapter 18, verse 25 to 32. Then the people would also tithe on the 90% that was left and take it to the temple for the annual feast. That's Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 through 11. And then every third year, they would give a tithe to take care of the poor. Deuteronomy 26, 12 through 15. God was very specific in how he called on the children of Israel to give. But here's the reality. When the spiritual life in the nation of Israel was weak, there was not enough money to take care of the needs of the house of the Lord. And you can read about that through the Old Testament. As the, ha- as the house would be closed down, it'd be full of cobwebs. The Bible wasn't being read. The fire would go out. The sacrifices were not being followed as they should. But in the time of spiritual awakening, the people would bring their offerings and then there would be plenty. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles 31, verses 1 through 12, or Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Shall a man rob God? Malachi asks. And the people said, well, how have we robbed you? He said, in that you have not given me the tithes and offerings. In the New Testament, some will argue there's no direct command to tithe in the New Testament, and yet the New Testament has much to say about giving. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 3 speaks about proportionate giving. Give as you've been given, right? Proportionately. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, being a good steward of God's money. It's not my money anyway. I'm just here to take care of what God's already blessed me with. Or how about in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, that we give in response to grace. I know a lot more could be said about giving. This message is not primarily about giving in the church, but rather it's about how are we supporting the work of the Lord? Because that's what he says. People that are going to be faithful and continue on, these people, they were going to submit themselves to the word of God. They were going to separate themselves out as the people of God, and they were going to support the work of God. I would challenge you with this, though, as you give to the Lord. Here's some dangers in our giving. Giving out of the wrong motive. That's a danger. Out of fear, greed, thinking, well, if I tithe, then God has to prosper me. That's a wrong reason to give. Or how about this? Giving and thinking then that I can do whatever I please with everything that's left over. No, because it's all God's in the first place. So even with what's left over, doesn't mean I have to write a check for everything I make to the church. That's not what this is teaching, but rather, all right, God, you've given me this much. How do I take care of my family with this? How do I help others with this? How do I see the work of the Lord go forward with this? God, give me wisdom because I'm a steward. It's not mine. I don't own this. Another danger is giving only saying, well, I gave this much and failing to give anything out of love to the Lord. Saying, well, I gave out of duty. I did what I, I did my part. Give out of love. God did not forsake his people when they were in need. You can read about that in Nehemiah 9, 31. And God's people promised not to forsake the house of the Lord. Nehemiah 10, 39. In another Old Testament book, the book of Haggai, there's another good one. 
Haggai chapter 1 and verse 4, many years before this time in Nehemiah, the time of Nehemiah, the prophet Haggai rebuked the people of God for taking care of their own houses and neglecting the house of God. True spiritual revival will always reveal itself in the way we give to be a part of the work of the Lord. We must so love the Lord that generous giving is not a surprise, but rather it's just a normal part of our life. God gives generous to me and I give generously back to Him because it's all His in the first place. Folks, this is kind of rubber meets the road stuff. Submitting ourselves to the Word of God. Separating ourselves out as the people of God. Supporting the work of God. I will tell you, it's easy to make a decision. It's easier to make a decision. God, I'm going to give it all to you than to actually live it out faithfully day by day, isn't it? Because what happens? We make a commitment. God, I'm going to support your work. God, I'm going to submit to your word. God, I'm going to separate myself out from this world. And then something happens. Sunday, we're on the mountaintop. Monday, it's rock bottom. What happens when you lose your job? What happens when somebody's sick? What happens when a family situation makes it very challenging to know what to do? It is a challenge to live the Christian life. That's why we need God's grace. It's sufficient. Because when we fail, and we do, we ask forgiveness. And God receives us back as His own because we're His children. That's why God loves us, and that's why He's given us His Word. He didn't give it because to make life complicated. He, give, he gave us His Word so that we would know what to do with the complicated lives that we live. Life is complicated because of sin. So God gave us His Word to know how to live, to follow Him. There may be some that will say, this sounds too hard for me. And I would say, you're probably right. I think it's too hard for me too. But all things are possible with God. We can't do this on our own. We can't be the kind of people that we're supposed to be in our own strength. We can't be the church that God wants us to be in our own strength. We don't have enough smarts. We don't have enough energy. We don't have enough money in and of ourselves. But the wonderful thing is we serve a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has all the money. We serve a God who knows everything. No man can teach God anything. I don't know it all, but He does. We serve a God who never slumbers or sleeps, he doesn't get tired. And boy, do we. We're going along, life feels great, and then something happens. Boom. We get hurt. We have an accident. Some problem comes up in life. It just, things are always coming. How are we supposed to live then if this is how we're supposed to live? This seems too hard. I'm just going to not try. No, we continue to strive to follow God because as his children, he promises to bear us up and to give us strength and to help us when we're weak and lift us up when we fall down and help us to be faithful to Him. I would ask you, though, this morning to think about the statement that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 21 when He said, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also the people here in nehemiah chapter 10 said it this way and we will not forsake the house of our god submission to the word of god separation as the people of god and support for the house of god these three things are necessary if we're going to continue to live the faithful life that God has called us to do.
As we finish our service this morning, the preaching time, I want you to know the service is not finished. Because one of the most important times of the worship service is our response to God's Word. That's why when we finish, and I close my Bible here, it doesn't mean the service is over. Sometimes we think that in our mind. Oh, it's Bible closed. I can pack up and go. Folks, take some time to let God's Word soak into your heart and mind and say, how am I going to respond to this? Is there some sin I need to confess this morning? God, I've fallen short in this way and I need to confess this to you. Now would be the time to do that. The piano comes and plays a song for us just to kind of quiet our hearts and minds and help us think. God, is there a sin I need to confess to you? Lord, is there some command you want me to follow, to obey, something I need to be doing that you want me to do? Lord, is there some other person that I need to get right with? God, I want to be right with others so I can follow you as they separated themselves out from the people around them. It unified the people together because they were focused on the same God. Whatever it is that God's speaking to your heart about this morning, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Would you take some time to do business with Him this morning? Father, thank You for Your Word. Help us as we consider Your truth. Lord, these are not simple things or easy things because these things cut right at what is often most dear to us. How we spend our time, how we spend our money, what we focus on, what we do. Lord, may we put you first. Seek to be holy as you are holy. And understand the perspective that we are serving you because of what you've done for us and because of who you are to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's Keep our heads bowed and eyes closed as the piano plays. Take time to respond to God's word this morning.